This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, February 13th, 2023. Welcome into a brand new broadcast week on The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast. Many ways to listen live. You can grab that free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is the best place to land for all of it. On the podcast side, you've also got FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new to the show or just starting to tune in, we are especially grateful that you're here. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Baer. Right around 645 Eastern Time, here on set in D.C., Fox News Channel. Tune in or set your DVRs. Hope to see you there. On the radio, here's the lineup today that we've got for you here. Jack Keane, retired four-star general. He will join us. Boy, do we have questions for him, given the developments of the weekend. Also, Jennifer Griffin, our colleague, national security correspondent at Fox News, she's been tracking all of these UFOs, and I say that term not in the extraterrestrial sense with that connotation, but quite literally, unidentified, still flying objects, although they're no longer flying in these cases. We're up to four shootdowns now. We got off the air on Friday with two shootdowns. That number has doubled over the weekend. What on earth is happening? Much more on that. The White House had a briefing moments ago. We've got some sound. An update, if you want to call it that, we'll bring it to you. In our final hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire joining us on a couple new data points coming out involving COVID, mask mandates, mask efficacy, the effect on children. I look forward to that conversation with Dr. Sapphire later in the show. Also something that I want you to hear we're going to do an extended Woke Tales segment based on a piece that was published by a left-wing black professor who got caught up in what he's referring to as almost like a cult of left-wing anti-racism, where even he was not safe. He got canceled. A firsthand account that is just striking. We will tell you all about it coming up. That's in our middle hour. But we begin with breaking news and a Fox News alert. As we have just alluded to, four different flying objects have now been shot down by the U.S. military, dating back first to that Chinese spy balloon that captured our attention for about a week. Then there was another object, much smaller, scant details, that got shot down over Alaskan airspace on Friday. Two more have come down, were brought down over the weekend. And as I mentioned, John Kirby... From the National Security Council, their spokesperson, he was at the podium at that briefing that we referenced a moment ago. 
It aired, what, an hour ago. He was in the briefing room taking questions. I listened to a fair amount of that briefing. And my number one takeaway was while there were a lot of words said and a few additional details shared, we aren't really any more informed about what is happening than we were on Friday afternoon. And one of the things that we've learned over the weekend is the recovery efforts up in Alaska have not actually produced whatever it is that we shot down yet. So I would say on the very big important questions, our knowledge is effectively frozen from Friday until now. A few details emerging here or there, two more objects shot down. But where these things are coming from, what they are, the nature of their capabilities, what we're gleaning from the wreckage, I mean, all of that stuff remains at this time, at least for public consumption, a mystery, which is intriguing. It's a little disconcerting, I would say. So Kirby earlier, this is, again, new news from moments ago. He said that the Chinese government, the CCP, does have a balloon surveillance program and that they have been operating that program for some time. He said that the U.S. government cannot rule out some degree of surveillance capabilities on any number of these unidentified objects that they have shot down. We have shot down four of them now in total. At one point in my brain, it was five, but that's because one appeared and then seemed to have disappeared, and then we caught back up with it in another location and shot it down. That's my understanding. Then he went on, and to me, this is underlining the point that I just made about the lack of real progress when it comes to actual information, new information about the nature of these objects. Here is Kirby in Cut 29 at the White House. We also know that a range of entities, including countries, companies, research, and academic organizations, operate objects at these altitudes for purposes that are not nefarious at all, including scientific research. That said... Because we have not yet been able to definitively assess what these most recent objects are, we acted out of an abundance of caution to protect the security, our security, our interest, and flight safety. An abundance of caution. I have some trouble with this because the abundance of caution with the big Chinese spy balloon was to not shoot it down even when it was flying over basically uninhabited places. Because they wanted to track it, they wanted to study it. That was the abundance of caution. Now, granted, these other objects have been floating or flying at different altitudes, so that, you know, that's a factor here, obviously. Could there have been civilian aircraft potentially interfered with or, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of a collision? That's at least the reason that they're giving that they decided to shoot these ones down, but again, it's out of the abundance of caution. One was actually shot down over Canada by the United States in conjunction with the Canadians. But it was it was our military, our planes that did it. So the first balloon, it took them a week to finally shoot down. They waited till it was over the sea, the Atlantic Ocean. Then the next, whatever it was, and some lawmakers who have been briefed have characterize these things and balloon as balloons rather the pentagon not really going that far saying no we we don't want to describe it that way yet much vaguer 
But the second one over Alaska, the size of a small car, as opposed to three school buses in the first case, that was shot down. And to our knowledge, they haven't recovered it yet. And then two more over the weekend. And I will confess, I had worked through several consecutive weekends. I needed to unplug a little bit from the news. So I would occasionally check Twitter. I would notice there was more news breaking on this front. But someone who did not take a single breath of break over the course of the weekend on all of this is our colleague here, the assistant producer on the show, Wyatt, who was glued to this coverage and knows the intricacies way better than I do. He joins me here in studio. And Wyatt, just walk us through this because, first of all, have I made any big mistakes yet in the way that I've set this up? No, everything's everything's correct. Okay. So we are up to four objects that have been downed by the United States military. The two that we talked about last week, including the breaking news on Friday, what happened over the weekend? So there were two other objects, one on uh, Saturday and one on Sunday, one yesterday. They're both classified as objects. They have not been classified as balloons because that's what we shot down last week over South Carolina uh, once it enter, uh, exited our airspace. But uh, on on Saturday, there was a, a uh, cylinder-shaped object spotted over northern Canada that we shot down in the Yukon. And it was flying at 40,000 feet, and that's significantly lower in altitude than it was on the Chinese balloon that we shot down. But similar to the Friday one. Similar to the Friday one, the same same uh, altitude, but still don't know what it's classified as, just like we don't know what it's classified as uh, on Friday over Alaska. And this was the one that was shot down on Saturday over Canada with their permission. The U.S. did it. This was like a joint effort. That we took the lead on, but it was, of course, with full clearance of the Canadian government. That was a cylinder-looking item. And then yesterday, my day was mostly consumed with sports and a huge basketball win for my Northwestern Wildcats and the Super Bowl. It's like, oh, here we go again. Another one shot down over the Great Lakes in U.S. airspace. This one apparently shaped a little bit differently and flying at yet a new altitude. Yeah, 20,000 feet. And what this one was, this was spotted, supposedly this same object was spotted over Montana the night before on Saturday night, and they scrambled jets and fighter jets to go observe this this object, and they lost it. And so overnight, I guess they were searching for it. They found it. Within the morning, they were tracking it, and they found it again over Michigan, and they took action and shot it down. But I think with these objects that have been shot down from Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they are all at a distance, at an altitude that is concerning to any flights in the area. That was one of the main reasons why these were shot down, as opposed to the China balloon, which was at an altitude of 60,000 feet, yeah, well, way up there. well above any commercial airplanes. And even 40,000 is, is pretty high up there. Maybe private jets go that high. 20,000, I mean, I can understand. That's a problem. I'm also trying to figure out how is it that we could spot one of these objects over Montana and then lose it? And then find it again the next day and then shoot it down over the lake. And this one apparently was roughly shaped like an octagon. We're getting not terribly specific descriptions of any of these things. And we still don't know much about even the one that was shot down three days ago on Friday. That's one of the weirder things about this to me. Yeah, and one of the most concerning things that our uh, colleague Lucas Thomason 
uh, tweeted over the weekend that is really concerning is that senior U.S. officials confirmed that the object that was shot down on Friday was able to penetrate U.S. airspace before being picked up on any radar, which is concerning that it was able to enter our, our airspace without us finding it. Like when the China balloon entered our airspace, we've been tracking that for a few days. We knew the trajectory it was coming. The whole flight we tracked, right, it, from China. Exactly. And then we, we, we watched it come all the way across the Pacific Ocean, then come into U.S. airspace, then down through Canada, then through our whole, like, continental U.S., and then it was still in our airspace, but off the coast, we shot it down. We had a handle on that the whole time. These other ones, they're saying, just kind of show up in U.S. airspace and then get detected. Yeah, and they've been doing some reconnaissance on it. They've been looking at them, tracking them, trying to get what they can to see what these uh, you know, objects are. But I also think it's important to note that uh, you know, they don't know where these are coming from. They don't know what they are. I mean, obviously, a lot of speculation about China because of the balloon from last week. China has not claimed any responsibility or said they have done anything, you know, in the realms of this being their balloons, but these have not been classified as balloons. They've been classified as objects that are floating. Some, uh, another concerning aspect too that they, they mentioned on the, the uh, balloon on Friday when they went up to go look at it was that it was some pilots that were in the fighter jets that were going to observe this object said that it was interfering with some of their equipment on board their planes, which obviously... I mean, that catches your attention immediately, like, whoa, what is that about? What kind of technology is that? Some of the other pilots said they experienced no such effect, but others said, yeah, no, this thing was messing with our planes. That's extraordinary. We'll have questions about all of this for General Keene, for Jennifer Griffin coming up later in the show. I do want to play one more soundbite. This is from Kirby Today saying that the U.S. and Canada stepping up their radar capabilities and their scrutiny of the skies above these countries in Cut 30. In light of the Chinese balloon program and this recent incursion into our airspace, the United States and Canada, through NORAD, have been more closely scrutinizing that airspace, including enhancing our radar capabilities, which, as the commander of NORTHCOM and NORAD, General Van Herc, said just last night, may at least partially explain the increase and the objects that have been detected. Slow-moving objects at high altitude with a small radar cross-section are difficult to detect on radar. Even objects the size of a, the Chinese spy balloon, which had a payload the size of roughly three school buses, were not picked up by previous administrations or other countries. How is that possible? Is that credible? These are questions that we will pose of General Keene coming up later on this hour. Wyatt, appreciate it. Thanks for bringing us up to speed. Uh, it is fascinating. It's a little bit unnerving. I think there are some more anodyne potential explanations for all this, but right now the answer just kind of seems to be we don't know much of anything still. And until we get more of those answers, I think the theories will continue to proliferate and fly around. You hear you know, people wondering about aliens, all of it. We're covering it as best we can in a responsible, skeptical way. Much more to come. We're just starting. It's a Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. One other very important point to recognize and highlight from the briefing earlier that we got from John Kirby at the White House. He did say that as of now, there are no objects that they are actively tracking. So it's been, what, one a day for the last three days. Nothing today, at least not yet. But they also said some of these objects were not trackable or at least had not been tracked until, boom, they were in our airspace. Then we found them. So the nothing being tracked today line doesn't mean that that will remain operative even for the next hour, necessarily. As a lot of people are looking for clarity and answers, I think a lot of us fall into that category. I thought to myself, what better source for such things than the White House press secretary? We do need some levity, don't we? Over the weekend on MSNBC, she was asked a question by Jonathan Capehart, a reasonable question. Why is the U.S. shooting anything down over Canada? Why isn't Canada doing that? That was the gist of the question. And Corinne Jean-Pierre, well, I mean, I guess you could call this an answer. Cut 24. Why is the American military shooting something out of the sky over Canada. Because it's part of a NORAD. There is a, the NORAD is part of like a, a part of a, it's a, it's a, what you call a coalition, a consortium, a, so, a pact, okay. exactly. And so that's why we were able to do that. Again, it, we didn't do it on our own. We did right. it in, in, uh, in, uh, it clearly in, 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 in step with uh, right. Canada. Canada. Uh, we did it clearly in step with Canada. Well, I would hope so. Is apparently a new country that's been added to the map. Amid all the confusion, I sh- it feels mean. It honestly feels mean just playing a soundbite of her sometimes without any further commentary. I don't know why it is considered a good idea at the White House to put her out there day after day. She is a seemingly very nice, beautiful woman who I'm sure has a number of skills. Doing this job not among those skills, or at least doing this job remotely competently. Just really struggling. The Canadian thing at the very end is what got me. And conservative accounts just put answers of hers out there on, like, Twitter with a transcript of what she said, and they get attacked for being mean or bigoted. It's like it is simply a clip of this person speaking with an accurate transcript. If sharing her words accurately is bigotry, I wonder what that actually means. Ay ay ay. Okay, back to the more serious stuff. We will get much more serious with General Jack Keane who will be here next to try to make some sense of some of this. Stay with us. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. The website, podcast always free. And with us now, General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. General, it's great to have you back on the show. Oh, Guy, it's delighted to be here, as always. Thank you. I also want to say, before we get into the subject at hand, it was also a really special to spend some time with you and your wife at the funeral over the weekend for my great aunt, Ann Cora Logos. I know you were very close with her. Uh, your wife was close with her and with Tom. Seeing you at the church, seeing you at the reception afterwards, it, it meant a lot, I know, to the family. And the outpouring, I thought, was extraordinary. She was an incredible woman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the foremost uh, women leaders in this country, uh, really quite remarkable, and uh, certainly uh, gained some real notoriety uh, as a member of Ronald Reagan's cabinet and continued to to serve for another 40-plus years in leadership positions. Uh, it, was, it was wonderful uh, to underscore what you said, to see the outpouring of affection for her from serving government leaders and former government leaders and and the entire swath of our business establishment, uh, and certainly honoring Ann and her husband, uh, Tom Carlos, as well. Uh, we were honored yeah. to be a part of it. Absolutely. And I learned some things at the funeral itself. One of the eulogies was given by Peggy Noonan, and it was just uh, really beautiful, as you might expect from Peggy. And I did not know that the reception location in one of the clubs that they belonged to, which is where they had also very generously thrown a wedding celebration or a marriage celebration for Adam and me, that club, prior to Anne, had been male only. She was one of the first two women ever to join. She and Catherine Graham, the publisher at the time of the Washington Post, joined together. Uh, just a very cool additional fact about the life of Anne Cora Logos, uh, really spectacular life, one that was remembered and celebrated very movingly on Saturday, and, and it was great to see you there, even though it was under tough circumstances. General, I do want to ask you about the number one story in the country today, these unidentified objects that have been shot down were up to four of them. One has been identified, the first one, but the last three have been much more mysterious. They have given us very little information about whatever these things were, Based on your experience, I'm just wondering, do you have an Occam's razor theory of what is the likeliest explanation for all of this, at least in your mind right now? Well, certainly for the first one, uh, as you mentioned, we, we clearly know it was a spy balloon, and, um, and it came from China, and it had extensive uh, technology on it, not just to collect the obvious in, in terms of uh, <clears throat> video surveillance, but also uh, electronic eavesdropping on likely tactical and operational nets, uh, which is a, a particularly challenging uh, for satellites, uh, given the elevation that satellites are at. So this this elevation is, is conducive to doing it. So sitting on top of military bases, uh, certainly adds to that. And, and I would suspect, uh, I was told that the electronic devices that provided video is very high resolution. So if you sit on top of a, a base or an ICBM field for any length of time, 
you're really going to pick up uh, quite a bit. And it would complement, obviously, what we get from satellites. Uh, but I was told that this resolution uh, <coughs> would be uh, really quite valuable. So, yeah, and the administration maintains that they were able to defeat this electronic capability, whether it was visual or or, or audio and uh, signals intelligence, as we really refer to it in the in the military culture, uh, very early on, and I'll take them at, at face value. Uh, but I don't think there's any total guarantee that you know that until uh, you actually are able to recover those uh, electronic devices. And, and, and that's that only the first still, device, still though. That's the giant balloon, right, that we've been talking about now for well over a, a week plus then we have these other three objects, much smaller, different shapes. One of them apparently a cylinder, one more like an octagon. We just got this minutes ago from Lucas Tomlinson, our Fox News colleague, a statement from the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, telling reporters that none of the debris so far has been recovered from any of the three objects that were shot down over Alaska, Canada, and Lake Huron. So, Three downed objects, no debris recovered yet, even dating back to Friday's incident. Austin says that these objects shot down over the weekend are, quote, very different from the Chinese spy balloon, which went down and was brought down February 4th, which you were just talking about. So, I mean, the fact that these are very different in nature, do you suspect that they are different elements within the arsenal of perhaps, say, a Chinese surveillance or espionage fleet? Or is this not China at all? What's your guess? Because right now it's all guesswork. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, the uh, <clears throat> the assessment so far is what visuals we were able to have of these devices did not reveal any significant payload uh, that it had with it, and uh, two of them were de- described as cylinder type. Uh, an F-35 pilot who who first uh, made contact with the uh, with the first of this type of device, which was actually the second balloon that was came after the spy balloon in Alaska, he described it as cylinder. Then the F-22 pilot who knocked it down uh, north of Alaska in the Arctic. Uh, see, uh, north of Prudhoe Bay there, he believed that the device shattered, uh, which would give it, obviously, a, a very different connotation than a typical balloon. So uh, until we get these devices in hand, and by the way, so our audience understands, the conditions up north of Alaska are really quite dramatic, and Lake Huron is going to obviously uh, a body of water, and the other one uh, uh, in Canada itself in, uh, in in wilderness terrain. All of these are going to be challenging. North of Alaska, there's only a few hours of daylight there this time of the year. Yeah, and there's considerable ice flows out there, yeah, and tough I conditions. they're having difficulty locating it. Uh, because of the the challenges. So I don't think we'll have the definitive answer to this until they are able to recover the devices themselves, and hopefully they can recover the devices. I mean, that'd be remarkable if we didn't recover them. I mean, you'd think you'd at least get one or two of them, if not all three. 
One thing, and again, this is a report that was out there, that at least some of the pilots that were scrambled to go observed the first of the three smaller objects, the one shot down over Alaska on Friday, at least one of the pilots said that the objects seemed to, quote, interfere with sensors on the planes. The other pilot saying that didn't happen to their aircraft. If there was some sort of interference coming from whatever this thing was, is that a clue? What what might that mean? Well, it certainly is. I, I hadn't heard that before, so I think that's revealing. That means there's some kind of electronic emission coming from the device, Uh which makes you uh, wonder what, what its mission was. So we don't know where they came from. We don't know what the, what the mission is. Um, and obviously, uh, so our audience understands that the administration has gone through a policy change here. Remember, the first balloon came, entered uh, U.S. airspace on the 28th after being observed for a number of days en route from China, and it, and it moved across uh, U.S. airspace from the 28th of January to the 4th of February, and a decision was made not to shoot it down until after its mission was complete. I believe uh, because of the severe criticism that that received, even though the administration makes the point they believe they defeated the electronic mission that the balloon had, uh, most of the <clears throat> Leaders in our government, in the Congress, and also I think in the minds of the American people, and sort of was, it was topic one at the funeral reception beyond the obvious topic, which was Anne and Tom Carlogas, uh, an incredible a sense of incredulousness that we would permit a balloon to go across the whole swath of the United States and not do anything about it to stop it from its mission. But I think. Because of that criticism, Guy, I think that conditioned the administration to act very decisively and almost immediately with these much lesser devices or objects, as they're calling them, in terms of what their potential surveillance and threat was to the United States. So it's it's obvious a policy change took place there. And also, we— and this is why the administration needs to give us some more information. In all three of those devices, uh, unlike the first spy balloon, we did not detect those devices until they were already in right. the U.S. or Canadian airspace. Right. So let me action. ask you – let me let me jump in on that point because that to me is worrisome. The balloon was huge and we were tracking it apparently – all the way as it floated from China into U.S. airspace and, of course, all the way across the continent of North America. These other ones, we weren't tracking at all. Then all of a sudden, boom, they show up in our airspace. We finally detect them. We take them down much smaller. Uh, it's unclear exactly what they were. If they were able to avoid or elude getting tracked until they were over our skies, that would suggest maybe some – some technology that is new or at least much more advanced. I wonder, just spitballing here, the the universe of the number of countries capable potentially of producing something like that has to be a pretty small list, right? You'd think of the United States, you think of China, maybe a few others, but that might narrow sort of the suspect list, so to speak, with, with their – uh, with there being a prime suspect for obvious reasons, the CCP. Yeah, I, well, I would agree with that. I mean, and certainly uh, the adversarial countries, uh, 
I think that would be the obvious ones, and certainly China and Russia and Russia's proximity as well. Now, um, there are other a couple of other points to make. It's what we are being told is that the way radars operate are radars that are fixated on Russian and Chinese bombers or ICBMs coming at the United States are operating at a certain frequency parameter to be able to detect those devices. And then if you're going to deal with a device at a different altitude, which has a completely different uh, protocol and profile associated with it, we are being advised then uh, some adjustments have to be made uh, to your radar system to pick up those devices. And they have made those adjustments after the spy balloon came in because they were concerned about the, the history of particularly China's fleet of balloon strategy here. And that's how they were able to pick up uh, devices that they reported had uh, about four of them, three, I think, in the Trump administration and one in the Biden administration, that they were not detected. They admitted that before uh, these other three balloons came uh, also into our airspace. So I, we're not getting a very clear explanation, Guy, I think, from the administration yet. And I just listened uh, to Admiral Kirby's explanation of this, you know, for about well over an hour in, in the White House, and it still begs uh, a lot of questions here mm-hmm. in terms of our – what I'm most concerned about here is what is our capability to detect uh, objects, balloons, or other platforms that can penetrate our airspace? And if we have holes in that, uh, then uh, and these balloons are revealing that, well, then admit it and let's – get on with fixing it and tell the American people we're going to fix it. I mean, we're very good getting after problems that we have. We've also been very good throughout our history in admitting, look, at if we if we got a shortfall, if we made a mistake in judgment or miscalculation, we have a history of being very honest with the American people about that. Tell us that and, and tell us also we're going to fix it. And, and I think we we would have some faith that that's going to take place. Well, I hope you're right. It's just, I think, difficult and frustrating to just know, okay, we're detecting these things, and their providence are very mysterious, their capabilities are very mysterious. We've taken them out. We don't know where they are. We haven't recovered them yet. We don't know where they're coming from. We can barely tell you anything about it, and I guess as of today, there's not anything else that we're tracking at this moment. They said that, too. That only gets us so far. It just feels like the ball has not been advanced on information or explanation in a number of days here which I think is breeding a lot of concern and more questions and theories and sometimes conspiracies, which is why we wanted to have you on to help give us some facts as best as you can glean them, because it's, it's difficult for all of us who don't have you know, super top-secret security clearances uh, looking presumably at some of the images of this stuff. We don't have access to that, at least not yet. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general. He's chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, Fox News senior strategic analyst, General, as always, we appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. You got it, guy. Thank you very much. Always enjoyed talking to you and your audience. Have a great week. Let, likewise, General. Thank you. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'll ask some more questions of Jennifer Griffin coming up in the next hour on this subject. It just seems to me that basically all of us are in the dark. We're getting little dribs and drabs of information, and that's it. So I have a working theory. I'm not confident of it. I'm trying to think through what would make the most sense, or at least trying to think about the most anodyne, least exotic possibility. And to me, it would sound a little something like the Chinese have been floating these types of objects, balloons or what have you, in a surveillance program for quite some time. Perhaps we're doing the same to them. I know they've made that allegation. We've denied it. Look, we're watching them very closely. One way or another, we are. Maybe we had been tracking but not really following or shooting it up the chain of command when these types of objects were floating into our airspace because we just wanted to sort of keep an eye on it. And it was something of a new normal. Again, I have no special knowledge on this. I'm just wondering. Like this was relatively commonplace. We didn't draw attention to it. Then all of a sudden, the spy balloon was so huge, spotted with the naked eye, became a big international incident. The hand of the Biden administration was forced into finally shooting the thing down. And then, now that there's scrutiny on this sort of thing, they're looking for them more. They're tracking them more aggressively. They're telling more people up and down the chain of command about them when they're found. So perhaps this kind of thing has been going on for quite a while. And it was just not necessarily accepted, but understood, saying, okay, like they're doing this, maybe we're doing something similar. And it was sort of out of sight, out of mind for those reasons. And then the scope and the size of the spy balloon changed the calculus, changed the game. And now we are detecting them or trying to much more aggressively and confronting them in a way that we hadn't privately or previously, I should say. That's my guess, but we don't know. Maybe Jennifer Griffin will have some answers for us. We'll ask her straight ahead. Next hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. A new hour is upon us here on the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C., the Tony Snow Studios. At the D.C. Bureau of Fox News, our nation's capital. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free when the show is over every day. We, of course, encourage you to listen live as we break news all the time here. I would also remind you to please tune in tonight. Special report. I'll be on the panel quarter to seven or so Eastern time with Brett Bayer and the whole team. That's on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we get going here. Hour number two, the Dow up today significantly, 
377 points in the green, closing out at 34,246. Picking up where we left off in the last hour on these unidentified objects being shot down, now four of them over the United States and Canada, just in the last couple of weeks, half of them over the weekend, three if you consider Friday the weekend. We are learning that all U.S. senators will be receiving a classified briefing tomorrow morning on what's going on. And I would imagine that they will be able to tell us something, but not everything about what they learn. We have U.S. Senator Marco Rubio on this program tomorrow, vice chairman of the Intelligence Committee. I very much look forward to that conversation with Senator Rubio post-briefing. We've also learned today from the White House that the administration is convening a committee, basically, a new group to study these incidents. And it will include various elements of the Pentagon, the FAA, DHS, and other government agencies, so a task force. That kind of feels like a we're doing something move for public consumption. The one detail from the story that is interesting is John Kirby saying that President Biden first was given a briefing on this issue of unidentified aerial phenomena in his presidential daily briefing back in June of 2021. So I said in the last hour, maybe things like this have been happening for a while. We're just learning about them more now. That would be at least one piece of evidence in that column. Joining us now, Jennifer Griffin, national security, national security correspondent for Fox News, fresh off of TV on Cavuto. And Jennifer, it's good to have you back. Thank you, Guy. So let's just start with what I just read, uh, which is this new task force that's being convened by the White House and the revelation today that President Biden was first made aware of something like this rising to the presidential level in the daily briefing back in June of 21. That's that's interesting. That's a piece of information amid days of not all that much new information. Well, I think um, to correctly characterize what happened in June of 2021 is the president was made aware during a presidential daily briefing about the concerns about the or what had been learned about a Chinese surveillance, a fleet of uh, surveillance balloons, high altitude balloons. Most likely, Guy, that came out of, remember Congress mandated the, under the Trump administration and under the Biden administration that uh, that the White House and the Director of National Intelligence present all that is known about unidentified aerial phenomena. Remember all those sightings yeah. by pilots. I think what happened, and I and this is what we've been looking into, is that in the course of having to present to Congress what was known by the intelligence community, they pieced together that some of those 272 sightings of 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 un, un what do they call them UAPs um, UFOs in in plain speak uh, that some of them were probably these Chinese surveillance aircraft. And so, so the uh, the U.S. government was aware of this surveillance program. They were a little surprised when that Chinese spy balloon took a hard right and came down into uh, the continental U.S. That is something that had that they had not expected uh, to happen. And that the, and then when it started loitering over Malmstrom and the uh, ICBM bases there, that also drew their attention. So they were watching this these surveillance craft. But what happened in June of 2021 is that the president. Uh, ordered his intelligence community to give him daily briefings about 
these these uh, UAPs or these uh, the Chinese surveillance program. So that's what sort of was happening, and that's why the intelligence community started looking backwards and started realizing once they had uh, more uh, details about the frequency and the uh, the signature of the Chinese spy balloons, they started looking back and realized that under the last administration, under the Trump administration, that in fact some balloons had come across Florida and Texas, but they hadn't realized it at the time. So that's the explanation for why, looking backwards, they, they realized that this had been going on for some time. Yeah, so is the explanation here basically, because I think to the average American, it's like, wow, all of a sudden, three shootdowns in three days, what's happening? This is yeah. all of a sudden escalating. It's happening much more frequently. Isn't this alarming? Uh, that, that might be the case, that there is some form of escalation here. The other explanation would be, it's not actually an escalation. We're just now in a more public way, more aggressively looking for these things, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, that at least makes some logical sense to me. I think there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, the large uh, Chinese spy balloon is very different from these three objects that were blown out of the sky in the last four days. We've heard the Pentagon say that the size is completely different. The Chinese spy balloon had uh, equipment that was about three uh, the size of three buses. This, these objects, and they don't know whether they were balloons, they don't know whether they were, they're calling them objects, because they were about the size of a car, and they were blips on the radar. The reason that they were seen on uh, the radar is after the Chinese spy balloon came across the continental U.S., the uh, intelligence community, the U.S. military, basically ramped up its radar in that parameter between 20,000 feet and 60,000 feet or 100,000 feet, and they have started seeing blips all over the place. So they're having to investigate these blips. The, the radar is more sensitive now. It's been, the aperture's been opened, the, uh, and they're looking for more stuff. And what they're finding is there's a lot of stuff in the air. Were these weather balloons? Are these innocuous research balloons? Very possibly. Uh, we've heard that from Pentagon officials today. In fact, the defense secretary just said it's possible these were not nefarious objects, but they had, now that everybody's on edge and now that the whole nation is looking up in the sky wondering, you know, if there's a Chinese spy balloon up there, um, I think there's a, a, a different calculation about what uh, what is being tracked and what uh, what will be shot down? I think the what we've heard the reason for shooting down these smaller objects that were in the air is that they were at a lower height and they could interfere with civilian aircraft. But I think what you're seeing is uh, is just a greater focus in the wake of that large Chinese spy balloon coming across the continental U.S. My understanding, Jennifer, is that. With the spy balloon, the big one, we were tracking it for many days. We were mm. well aware of it, whereas these other ones, it's sort of like, oh, all of a they sudden they up. show up, <laughs> right? That's, yeah. that's, that's not a great feeling. Like, oh, surprise, there's some unidentified thing well. in U.S. airspace. Now it's gone. By the way, we can't find it yet because the terrain is hard and the weather's bad. We don't really know what these things are. We can't tell you any more about them. We don't really know all that much more about them. And then there's also the piece from the Pentagon side, you know, shooting every single one of these things down with a missile. It's extremely expensive. Are there more effective ways of neutralizing or capturing or taking these things down? These are some of the other questions that I've heard people chatting about over the weekend. 
Well, I think what you're going to start to see, first of all, I think this is an overcorrection for not reacting sooner to the Chinese spy balloon. So let's let's just be clear. I don't think this is going to continue at this pace. I think what they're going to realize once they are able to get to, and these, these objects that were blown out of the sky, they are in very remote locations and they haven't even been able to get to. It's, it's you know, Arctic conditions um, in Alaska. They can't get to that location. It's mountainous terrain in Canada. They can't get to that position. And it's uh, very cold and deep waters in Lake Huron near in the Canadian waters where uh, where the other object was blown out of the sky. So so once they get to them, if they can actually figure out that these were in fact weather balloons, then you're going to see, you know, I think a lowering of temperature. Are they though going to keep that radar system up and looking at everything? Yes. But are they going to be shooting anything that, that, uh, that is on that radar system from here on out, I really don't think that that's the era that we're entering. I think this is a very unusual moment. I think it also sends a deterrent message to China and to Russia not to try us and not to send things over the continental U.S. So it kind of serves multiple purposes. But I can't imagine that they're going to be F-22s and F-16s firing sidewinders into every weather balloon. Uh, you have to remember, Guy, there are between six and 8,000 balloons, high-altitude balloons in the air around the world at any given moment. So there are a lot of things flying around. And I just think Which is normal. now that we're- A lot of them are normal. That, yes. They're, most of them are research. Most of them are weather. Most of them are Google Earth or Amazon. Uh, there, there are a number of very legitimate reasons for balloons to be up in the air. Um, they're not all Chinese spy balloons. But- Presumably, because we aren't shooting these things all out of the sky, we can kind of differentiate between, okay, we know what that is. We're aware of its existence. We're not going to blow it up. We're not going to shoot it down versus these things, which at least the official word is they they don't know what they are. You know, you seem to suggest that maybe they're weather balloons. I was under the assumption that they were Chinese assets of some sort, you know, aerial assets. I guess we don't know. There's no evidence of that. And in fact, no we heard today from the Pentagon that they don't even know that these three objects came from other countries. So, I mean, there is very little known about what was shot out of the sky. And I think we will know more in, you know, coming weeks, but it's not going to be immediate given where they went down. And mm-hmm. and so I think everybody needs to sort of differentiate between the very large Chinese surveillance balloon, which the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence can track and would see coming now, and now everything's focused on those Chinese surveillance balloons. There, there, It would be very difficult for the Chinese to get one of those balloons close to U.S. airspace at this point in time, um, given what everyone is looking for. But I think there's a big difference between that and these smaller balloons, or if they were even balloons, they'll just call them right. objects that were right. blown out of the sky. And I do think we have to differentiate between those. And it's certainly fair to ask a question, you know, why did the U.S. military use sidewinders, which costs, you know, several hundred thousand dollars per uh, per missile? Uh, but I think given the state of the country and and the concerns about sending a deterrent message, I think that's probably why you saw uh, these strikes in the last four days. I do hope that we get more information soon to put to rest some of the conjecture out there. I almost hesitate to ask, finally, Jennifer, this question, but, I mean, so many people are talking about it. It's like, okay, we have no explanation. The details are not forthcoming. We don't know what these are. 
sometimes people their their brains go to aliens, right? Is this is this extraterrestrial of some sort? Well, you know, it's uh, out there. So it wasn't helpful when General uh, Glenn Van Herc was asked about this from the New York Times correspondent right. during the Super Bowl when we were having right. a briefing with uh, with reporters. I was a little surprised that he didn't rule that out at that moment uh, because uh, certainly behind the scenes, nobody was thinking that these were alien aircraft. Uh, John Kirby at the White House today sort of put a final pin in that and said that, that nobody, you know, thinks that these were aliens and, and that they weren't, period. So I think, you know, we really do need to stay within the realm of the possible. And and it it is uh, much more likely that these were weather balloons or some sort of research craft that did not file a proper flight plan with the FAA and they got blown out of the sky. I have a feeling anyone putting up a balloon from now on, if they care about that balloon, they're going to yeah. be filing a flight path report with the FAA. Yeah, cross some T's, dot some I's on the paperwork there. It's important. And, but you're right, because at the Super Bowl party I was at, some people were like, yo, did you see this? Some general would not rule out uh, aliens. Yeah. And then, you know, you have a 24 hours of that, and, and it seems like the White House swatted it down a bit today. As we all just wait for actual concrete information here, of which we have very little. But Jennifer Griffin has the Guys, best handle on what we thing. do have. Yeah, just 20 seconds. Thing. We just heard that off the coast of South Carolina, they did pull up with a crane, a very large piece, about 30 feet wide, with a lot of the technical instruments and intelligence from the Chinese spy craft. So we're going to learn a lot more very soon about that craft. Good. A treasure trove of intel on that particular item, that giant balloon. Jennifer Griffin, our guest, national security correspondent here at Fox News. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thanks, Guy. With that, we will step aside. We will float on from the balloon to a few other topics, including uh, this story. It's a woke tale story. You need to hear it. We will walk you through it as soon as we come back. A fascinating Monday edition of The Guy Benson Show is here, and we're very glad that you're with us. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free every day. And it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! So I read this piece over the weekend. It made the rounds on social media. It is fascinating. And it actually reminds me a little bit of a story that we spent quite a bit of time on last week, which was the whistleblower from the Pediatric Gender Center in St. Louis. A self-described queer woman whose politics, she said, are to the left of Bernie Sanders. So way, way off in Leftyville. But what she witnessed in her role for four years at this gender center for kids increasingly was disturbing to her. And she began to realize that a lot of these, what she calls harms, based on a lack of science were not actually grounded in factual information. And when she asked too many questions about this, she was chided, she was reprimanded, she was effectively told to leave. So she decided to throw the flag on this thing. She blew the whistle to the state of Missouri, to the Republican attorney general there, and then wrote a piece at Barry Weiss's website about what she'd witnessed. This was someone fully ensconced on the left in that ecosystem 
looking around at some point and saying, this is going too far. This is not good. This is poisonous for kids in particular. And then using their own left-wing bona fides sort of as a shield to try to say, I have the permission structure to call this out and to show what's happening, to expose what's going on. Knowing full well that that was going to provoke a furious response from a lot of the fellow travelers in those circles. Speaking up against the tribe because of the truth, the well-being of children actually being the motivating factor here, which is an admirable one, I have to say. I think we would all agree on that. So this other story, on a very separate note, we're not talking about hormones or surgeries or anything related to gender. Instead, this is about race. And there's a magazine called Compact. And in a piece written by Professor Vincent Lloyd, this is a first-person account of what he has gone through. The headline is, A Black Professor Trapped in Anti-Racist Hell. His story, his account, is harrowing. It is fascinating. It's also infuriating. All of those details when we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. So this article, it's a piece in Compact Magazine. I read it over the weekend. I read it carefully. The headline is, A Black Professor Trapped in Anti-Racist Hell. It's extraordinary, maybe not surprising these days, but disturbing nonetheless. It's written by Professor Vincent Lloyd. And Lloyd describes how he has been associated for a number of years with something called the Telluride Association, which operates educational houses at the University of Michigan and Cornell University. They also have apparently a very prestigious summer program where only 3% of applicants get in. These are high school students taught college-level courses in a seminar-type setting. And it's very, very exclusive. It's very sought after. And the goal is to bring together the very best and brightest of America's teenagers. I'd never heard of this. Apparently, they keep a pretty low profile. But this is something that people really do seek after in certain circles. And apparently, through this professor's telling, at least for a long time, there was some semblance of ideological diversity and balance. Now, when he just came back last year to be a part of this, he discovered that things had changed very dramatically. And he traces it back to the summer of 2020, the George Floyd riots, and that pivot moment where the hardcore racialist left really went off the deep end in a lot of ways. So like we saw last week in the whistleblowing piece about the pediatric gender center, the clinic, this gentleman, near the very beginning of his piece, lays out his own biography, basically saying, are you kidding me? This is who I am. They're coming after me? Quote, I am a black professor. I directed my university's black studies program. I lead anti-racism and transformative justice workshops. I have published books on anti-black racism and prison abolition. I live in a predominantly black neighborhood in Philadelphia. My daughter went to an Afrocentric school. 
I am on the board of our local black cultural organization. So, I mean, he is a way out there lefty. He is a progressive. He is, I would probably characterize it myself this way, someone who is a race obsessive. This is the space that he has dedicated his career and his life to. And actually part of my thinking is, having read what happened to him, I wonder if there's any sense of complicity given the CV that I just read and relayed from him. Now he goes on to say this, like others on the left, I had been dismissive of criticisms of the current discourse on race in the United States. Right? He was in that bubble. And all these weirdos out there, especially on the right, saying, hey, this is unhealthy, this isn't good, this is too much, he admits he was dismissive of it. But now, he writes, my thoughts turn to that moment in the 1970s when leftist organizations imploded the need to match and raise the militancy of one's comrades, leading to a toxic culture filled with dogmatism and disillusion. It actually reminds me of another story that we did in a Woke Tales segment months ago about how a lot of the professional left organizations in D.C. are falling apart because their own membership, their own staff, all they do is snipe at each other using identity as a weapon to try to take each other down. They're consumed with self-loathing and internal hatred and bitterness and divisions and grievance And so they're not really being all that effective externally, which I thought was actually very good news for the country, but a very clear example of how the revolution eats itself. So that's the backdrop to this. What happened was this man had taught one of these college summer courses, and I guess it's a six-week program, all expenses paid for these 12 elite high school students who get selected. Out of hundreds and hundreds of applicants, they choose 12. And apparently it's this great experience typically where bonds are formed and friendships are made and there's a free flow and exchange of ideas guided by the professors and all of that. And he had done one not that long ago, like during the Obama years, 2014, and then he was invited back to facilitate another seminar last year. He writes, the first few days, the students were exactly what you'd expect. At turns bubbly and reserved, all of them curious, playful, figuring out how to relate to each other and to the seminar texts. Four weeks later, I again sat in front of the gathered students. Now their faces were cold, their eyes down. Since the first week, I had not spotted one smile. Their number was reduced by two. The previous week, they had voted two classmates out of the house. And I was next, he writes. Quick aside, Part of the ethos of the program is that the kids are self-determinative in terms of their agenda. It's this little mini-democracy where they govern themselves. They allow these 16- or 17-year-olds to govern themselves, which is an interesting experiment. And I guess now in the current climate, ultimately it was three, not just two, three. A quarter of the 12 kids got voted off the island by the self-governing body of this what turned into hyper-woke mob, who ultimately canceled their own professor, the professor whose biography I just read to you, on a course centered completely on issues of race and grievance and victimhood and all of that. He wasn't pure enough. Why? Quote, I was guilty of countless microaggressions. 
at one struggle session, or really an accusation session, each student read from a prepared statement about how the seminar perpetuated anti-black violence in its content and form, how the black students had been harmed, how I was guilty of microaggressions, including through my body language, and how students didn't feel safe. There's that word. What happened to these 17-year-olds? What changed? Was there someone or something stirring the pot? There was. We are introduced to this character in the saga. We'll tell you about her as soon as we come back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. A black professor trapped in anti-racist hell. A first-hand account written by Professor Vincent Lloyd. We're walking through this piece published over the weekend. How a seminar class in a decades-long program for high schoolers just imploded last summer. And there was a catalyst. Now, it turns out that one of the crucial elements that led to this circumstance was a woman named Keisha. He calls her Keisha. That's not her real name. He gives her anonymity, which is another question that I have, why he does that. This is an Ivy League grad, a young woman, hyper left-wing, very radical. And he says that her mentor is a pretty famous racially focused person who is on cable news. I would love to know who that is. That person also goes anonymous in this piece. But Keisha decided that there wasn't enough radicalism in this seminar, and she was not even steadily but surely, she was rapidly taking control of matters, poisoning the well, and turning the kids against each other and against the professor. She was assigned to create anti-racism workshops to fill afternoons. Usually there was free time. You could read. You could do your homework. You could interact. They wanted to get rid of the free time and fill it with anti-racism workshops, which even the students described as emotionally draining. What do these workshops entail? Here's what the professor tells us in the story. From what I gleaned, they involved crudely conveying certain dogmatic assertions, no matter what topic the workshops were ostensibly about. And here are some of the tenets that were taught to these kids. And I, it's, I don't think it's too strong a word to call it brainwashing. Number one, experiencing hardship conveys authority. Number two, there is no hierarchy of oppressions except for anti-black oppression, which is in a class of its own. Number three, trust black women. Number four, prison is never the answer. Number five, black people need black space. And by the way, this organization, this whole program has lurched in the direction of racial segregation, like the neo-segregationists are these hyper-woke people. The next point, allyship is usually performative. Listen to this one. All non-black people and many black people are guilty of anti-blackness. And finally, there is no way out of anti-blackness. Think about drilling these toxic thoughts into the young, impressionable minds of high school students. Where there's a grievance Olympics, you have to demonstrate hardship and harm in order to have authority. And you get authority because of the oppression. And not all oppressions are equal. Black oppression is the worst by far. By the way, whenever there's a conversation about crime or 
society, prison is never the answer, just in case you were curious. And everyone who isn't black is guilty of anti-blackness, as are quite a few black people. Oh, and in case you were hoping there was a way to move past anti-blackness, atone for it, transcend it, sorry, that's not possible. There's no way out of anti-blackness. It's a fact of life forever. This is what they are telling these kids. Two of the Asian-American students ended up getting expelled. I guess they were the first two to get expelled from the program. For reasons, according to Keisha, whatever her real name is, couldn't be shared with this professor. During one discussion on incarceration, an Asian-American student cited federal inmate demographics that about 60% of those incarcerated are white. The black students immediately said they were harmed because they had heard in one of their workshops from Keisha, quote, that objective facts are a tool of white supremacy. Outside the seminar, I was told, the black students had to devote a great deal of time to making right the harm that was inflicted on them by hearing prison statistics that were not about black people. A few days later, that student who brought up the statistic was expelled from the program. Similarly, this professor writes, after a week focused on the horrific violence, death, and dispossession inflicted on Native Americans, Keisha reported to me, the professor, that the black students and their allies were harmed because we hadn't focused sufficiently on anti-blackness in that lesson. When I tried to explain that we had four weeks focused on anti-blackness coming soon, as indicated in the syllabus, she said the harm was urgent and it needed to be addressed immediately. By the way, this is a six-week program, and the seminar is completely about, like, systems of oppression and race. And four of the six weeks are on anti-blackness. I mean, right there, I think, there's an issue. But I guess it just wasn't good enough. Talking even a little bit about what Native Americans went through was seen as taking away from the harms done to black people, and therefore it was harmful to talk about it, and therefore it needed to be corrected or whatever. And Keisha just sort of took over the show. One morning, the professor showed up. No one was there. And he said, typically, in the past, everyone was very punctual. They would show up. They were engaged. Instead, as this drift has happened, and it went back to the George Floyd riot era, where a bunch of black alumni in particular and very progressive alumni of this program said, we need to center black voices and black hostility and black harm and all that stuff. And the program has just changed dramatically. And then kids started showing up late. They started wandering off to take breaks. Just the whole complexion of the thing was altered. So he shows up one morning. No one's there. He waited. No one's there. Keisha shows up and she says, the students have something to say to you. And then she ushers them in, and they have their written scripts, and they just berate him for a while about all the harms that he's done. He writes, the students had all the dogma of anti-racism, but no actual racism to call out in their world. So Keisha had channeled their desire to combat racism at me. One white girl punctuated the point, quote, Keisha speaks for me. She says everything I think just better than I ever could. Mary Catherine Hamm, my friend, in reading this piece, observes, What strikes me most about this story is virtually every demand from the group of allegedly smart, aspiring elite intellectuals is a demand to not think. They want lecture over discussion. They want to be told what to parrot. They therefore feel like they cannot be asked to think. The upshot is 
this seminar just imploded. It unraveled, and it was canceled weeks shy of its scheduled conclusion. The professor was drummed out. He offered to continue his lectures and conversations. No one ever reached out to him except for the three kids who had been thrown out by their fellow classmates. And he was just like, wow, this is eye-opening. As I said, I do wonder, number one, does he feel any regret? Does he feel any complicity here? Because I think you could argue that he helped create this monster. Right, the old, I didn't think the leopard would eat my face. I I wonder if he's feeling that. He kind of hints at that, implies it a few times. I don't know why he allows Keisha to remain anonymous. She's an adult. She's a bully. She's feeding this poison to the kids. She ruined the whole experience, basically, as the, the ringleader. She's an adult. She graduated from Ivy League school. Why is she granted anonymity, as is her apparently somewhat prominent mentor? I would love to know if there are any follow-ups to this. But this is what's happening at very elite levels inside the United States. And as we have learned, some of the craziest excesses at the elite, especially on-campus, ivory tower, sliver of our society, those things get exported. They metastasize. They spread throughout our culture. The hope is that there are some people on the progressive left who have at least previously been very much gung-ho part of this whole push, laughing at, deriding, dismissing, even openly contemptuous of anyone who questions it, once they start to get consumed by it and disturbed by it and see what it's actually doing, especially to young people, they're now raising public concerns about this, which I hope is a good sign. I hope... That means that real progress and clawing back some of this madness is possible. But I don't know, because these people jealously guard their power. And this is their method of grabbing and wielding power over other people. So it's something that has to be identified consistently. Not just flagged, not just exposed, not just highlighted, but actively resisted. Otherwise, you're going to experience what's known as institutional capture. And this is like a small microcosm of it. This program that you and I had probably never heard of, this elite summer program at this organization across two campuses, it was this thriving, exciting project spanning decades. And then it has been captured by the hardcore identitarian left, which is in the process of utterly destroying the program, in the span of just a few short years, undoing everything that had been built. Do people stand up to it and stop it, or do they cower and eventually get canceled themselves? A lot of this stuff is playing out like left-on-left struggle. But again, at some point, this starts to bleed into everything else. It's not just a province of the left, which is why I'm bringing it up here. Eventually, this cancer comes for all of us, which is why it's going to take a cross-ideological effort to defeat it. That's why we have to team up with leftists, whatever they've done in the past, to fight it. And that's what we do regularly on this program, especially in our segment called Woke Tales. Woke Tales, woo! Final hour of the program coming up. 
Dr. Nicole Sapphire. Boy, we've got some really interesting areas to explore with her. That is straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Monday Happy Hour. On the Guy Benson Show, thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day on demand when the show is over. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm on the panel with Brett Bayer and the team around 645 Eastern. That's coming up on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. We had it at the Super Bowl party that we attended last night. More on the Super Bowl later. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where the long drink is sold near you. You can also order online. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining us now, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, best-selling author of the book Panic Attack, and doctor, it's always great to have you here. Guy, I'm always happy to join you on a busy Monday. Yes, so there's a lot to get to. I want to start with this. I saw quite a bit of reporting on this front last week. I just didn't have time to get to it, especially with so much of the breaking news. But there's a headline in a column at the Chicago Sun-Times, and it's been written about elsewhere as well. New research shows CDC exaggerated evidence for masks in fighting COVID. The analysis found that wearing masks in public, quote, probably makes little or no difference. Here's how the piece begins. After questioning the value of general mask wearing early in the COVID-19 pandemic, the CDC decided the practice was so demonstrably effective that it should be legally mandated even for two-year-olds. A new review of the evidence suggests the CDC had it right the first time. That review, published by the Cochrane Library, if I'm saying that, Cochrane, Cochrane Library, an authoritative collection of scientific databases, analyzed 18 randomized controlled trials that aim to measure the impact of surgical masks or N95 respirators on the transmission of respiratory viruses. It found that wearing a mask in public places, quote, probably makes little or no difference in the number of infections. These findings go to the heart of the case for mask mandates, and the piece goes on. You know, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, the mandate component of it, of course, and here is... You can maybe agree or disagree with whether this is the ultimate authoritative review, but there is an awful lot of very serious data that went into this. And for the conclusion to be what it is, it just seems to me like another black eye for the establishment that has been telling us for now the better part of three years, shut up and listen to us because we're the experts. Even when the experts were ignoring elements of the data or completely distorting the data for whatever purposes they wanted to pursue – I mean, this seems, I don't know if you want to call it a scandal, but it seems very significant. 
Well, it certainly does. And I think one of the important things to highlight when we're talking about the Cochrane Review Group, they didn't just form during COVID because they wanted to prove masking doesn't work. And instead, it's actually been established review group of individuals who have gone together. And actually, they have been on the forefront of evaluating whether mask wearing works in decreasing the transmission of respiratory viruses well before COVID. In fact, about until 2006 was when they started. And they had put out just at the beginning of COVID, they decided to look at all of the existing data to see when there was a big question as to whether or not we should be wearing masks. And they said in 2020, you know, based on what we have thus far, mind you, again, it wasn't SARS-CoV-2, but based on the data we have thus far, it doesn't seem generalized mask wearing decreases, um, has a significant impact on decreasing transmission in these aerosolized and highly contagious respiratory viruses like other SARS viruses and influenza. The Cochrane Review Group has now just added to that the randomized control trials that have been done throughout COVID. So it is obviously a more robust and comprehensive review. They added 11 new studies, all randomized control groups, which had about 611,000 participants. And what they said was, listen, the data still isn't good, but when you look at things from a whole, Mind you, again, a lot of the, the studies that were done were subpar at best still. So this review, you know, it, it's only as good as the studies that it's looking at. But based on mm -hmm. all of the existing data, they have said from a population standpoint, it doesn't seem that mask wearing from the population had a significant effect on a number of cases. And there's a lot of reasons that may be. There may be, you know, other things that affected the transmission rates, but largely as a whole, as you can see, whether you lived in a red state or a blue state, some who had strong, strict mask requirements and some that didn't, everyone still had the waves of COVID. You still saw high cases. And so while they're not saying that, listen, as an individual, if you wear a good mask appropriately, you know, you still, you may be able to decrease your risk of getting infected, but as a whole, they don't seem to have an effect. And that's important when you're talking about mask mandates. Yep, especially the requirement side of it, because it wasn't just, hey, this is an opportunity for you to maybe marginally protect yourself a little bit better. It was these things work. They work well. And after telling us at the beginning, actually, they don't work, you know, forget about it. It's not that important because they were worried about shortages. So they told a little white lie to us. Then they caught up and said, all right, we've got enough masks now for the general public. Not only should you wear them, and they work extremely well, you must wear them. And by the way, that includes a bunch of young children in schools. And it doesn't matter if your parents can prove there's some sort of demonstrable harm to the kid. The mandate applies to you also. It just seems like they took shoddy data and turned it into dogma, basically, and then shoved it down everyone's throat for a very long time with some of these hangers-on and dead-enders, especially in the bluer jurisdictions, clinging to the dogma for months and months and months after it had sort of been, I think, disproven, broadly speaking, through the massive experiment that we all went through collectively in this country and around the world. They clung to it anyway. And, I mean, I can handle some inconvenience as an adult having to wear a mask when I felt like it was no longer worthwhile. But it's a lot harder to forgive, at least in my book, and this is another topic that we've talked about a lot, when it comes to kids and mandating stuff for young children where – the data and the evidence just wasn't there and never was there, doctor. 
Well, when it comes to COVID and kids, Guy, that is probably one of the most infuriating things that has happened is just the complete dishonesty and lack of transparency from the CDC when it came to their recommendations, which ultimately trickled down and turned into mandates regarding our children. And they would take specific studies, they would do their own little studies, and there were so many confounding bias and variables, but they would say, oh, look at this, look at this. It actually proves that something is working. But they're completely neglecting to acknowledge the the other robust data that either is just goes against their talking points. And we saw this with more than just masking. We saw it with keeping kids from home. We saw it with the vaccine mandates, the booster mandates. I think we just saw the White House today is again encouraging those six months and older to now get the updated booster. Uh, by the way, there still isn't actual data demonstrating that there is a clinical benefit in healthy young kids to get this updated booster, not to mention kids who've already recently had COVID, which is nearly 100% of them. So they're very dishonest in it, and unfortunately, it has done a huge disservice to the trust in public health. Yeah, I mean, that is the perhaps lasting outcome here, where people in the past might have been much more trusting of these institutions and the public health community. And I feel like so much of that trust and faith and goodwill has been squandered and reversed and like really set on fire by a pretty small handful of people who would just circle the wagons and make assertions. And when the data would conflict with their assertions, it was just like, you know, screw you. We don't care. And a lot of Americans noticed that. And I think that they were deeply offended by it and This will affect their thinking moving forward. You tweeted about this over the weekend. Let me just read from your Twitter feed. You were just mentioning this a moment ago. As expected, the CDC has added COVID shots to the child-slash-adolescent immunization schedule. This means COVID vaccine is being portrayed as equally important as others, like MMR and polio, when it is not. Bad decision and will further contribute to declining rates of other childhood vaccines This has to be making you just tear your hair out, doctor, because there are really important vaccines that kids absolutely need in this country. We've kept bad, deadly diseases at bay for decades thanks to these vaccines. And to put the politicized COVID vaccine sort of on par on this schedule, as they call it, for kids where a lot of parents are going to understandably resist it for the reasons that you just mentioned, the lack of data, the dearth of information and real evidence – People will then start questioning, Okay, do we really need these other ones, too? Please explain why they shouldn't be equated and why you think this is a mistake. Well, you cannot compare measles, mumps, rubella, polio to COVID when it comes to kids. I mean, the the fatality rates of those others are just extremely high. And when it comes to COVID and mortality rates in children, it is exceedingly low, approaching zero. And in fact, we don't even have clear data on it because the CDC has not released an actual number of how many healthy children have died from COVID. We know that the number of deaths associated with COVID, especially in children, have been inflated upwards of over you know, 50%. In other countries, they have actually reported zero healthy children have died from COVID, but the United States has failed to actually put forth accurate data to give us a realistic risk. But even on what we have, again, which we know is inflated, that approaches zero. And now that we have seen that 
population vaccination efforts are not going to stop transmission of this virus like it does with other viruses like measles and polio. When you have a large amount of the population vaccinated, it stopped transmission. And that's how we have been able to nearly eradicate these deadly viruses. It became glaringly obvious throughout these vaccination campaigns that that's not going to happen here. So when that happens, you really have to take a step back and say, well, what is our ultimate goal when it comes to these vaccination campaigns? And at this point, we know it's not to halt transmission. That's not going to happen. We know that you still have massive waves of infections, even when you have high vaccine population immunity. So our goal then is to give it to someone if it's going to save their life. Is there a clinical benefit? And when it comes to elderly and those who are immunocompromised, I think there is much more data demonstrating a benefit in them. They have not proven that there is a significant clinical benefit in vaccinating younger kids. And when there's already so much controversy surrounding these vaccines, they should have been much more careful in their recommendations because all of a sudden parents, especially those who no longer trust the system, and by the way, I can't blame them, they're, they're going to lump all of these together and they're not going to go. And we've already seen the sequela of that. We've seen decreased childhood vaccination rates throughout the pandemic. Some of it was because people didn't want to go into the doctor. Pediatricians weren't even allowing people in. But now that we've kind of gotten back to a level of normalcy, you're still seeing declining vaccination rates. And the CDC is responsible for it. And they are the number one supporter of the anti-vax campaign right now. Oh, I mean, it's just it's so frustrating and, and upsetting And it really does seem like they felt like they needed to lie to us a lot because it was for our own good. We were all too collectively stupid to really understand the nuances, so they took this battle axe instead of a scalpel. And then people said, well, hang on, the battle axe is doing a lot of damage, and there's actually not evidence behind this battle axe. So maybe the other stuff they're telling us isn't true, and it's so damaging for the reasons that you just laid out. Lastly, Dr. Sapphire, there's this new headline in the Washington Post, and they've got a infographic or a graphic that accompanies it with a number two pencil, a sharpened number two pencil that's the tip has been broken off. And the headline is, thanks to COVID, half of kids fell below grade level in at least one subject. So not surprising that kids have fallen behind learning loss, the total failure of remote learning, school closures in some places for a year and a half, just a complete fiasco and a disaster for so many kids. But the way that it's sort of framed as COVID's fault, thanks to COVID. Well, yes, the underlying cause was COVID, but the actual precipitating cause was political leaders reading or misreading the information on COVID and then applying those lessons in public policy and inflicting bad decisions on kids. I just feel like it sort of reminds me of like the passive voice where people don't want to actually place responsibility on the people who did so much damage by making it seem like, you know, COVID came out of nowhere, which to some extent it did. And COVID itself, the disease itself, started making policy decisions, especially involving kids in this country, which seems at least to me, to my cynical mind, designed to absolve responsibility from the people who were actually responsible for these things. Well, I think you're completely right, but let's talk about something for a second, Guy. We have to stop saying, oh, well, because of COVID, this is why all of these things happen. What else happened during COVID? Yes, we saw the lockdowns. We saw the remote learning. That didn't work for a lot of people. You had people, 
those who were able to pulled their kids from school and they were able to homeschool them. You saw a lot of kids moving from the public schools, going to the charter schools, going to the private schools. And you also have a lot of kids who are unaccounted for. And whether that is they need to stay home and help care for younger siblings, whether they've just dropped down being so below proficiency that they just can't keep up anymore, we don't know. It is going to have devastating consequences. And there's missing kids. They're, They're talking like they're missing, sort of. And in effect, they are from the system. But what else happened? So do you remember when you we saw the emails and the legislation between Randy Weingarten, the one of the teachers union presidents, when they were doing their demands to get teachers back in, they were saying things like, well, they need to be priority for vaccination. They need to have increased filtration, blah, blah, blah. They need to have... We, they wanted socialized medicine. They wanted support for Black Lives Matter. Like, all of a sudden, they started inserting political agendas where it did not belong whatsoever. And I think kids and parents have gotten fed up on it, and the public school system is not what it was originally intended for. The focus is no longer to educate our children with the basic fundamentals to get them into life with reading, mm-hmm. writing, all of the sorts. They have the politics have just infiltrated the educational system and these lost children are going to suffer because of it. Yeah. And it's like some of these union bosses said, aha, here's a real crisis. Let's use it. Let's exploit it to pursue our pre-existing agenda for our own selfish desires and needs and so on and so forth. And that's the bad news. And there's a lot of bad news, especially for the kids who are affected. The good news is people saw it eyes wide open And there has been a real shift towards school choice in a lot of the states, and I hope that momentum continues because these teachers' unions really revealed themselves for who they are, what they're truly motivated by over these last couple of years. And I think there must be a policy backlash to that, and we're seeing it underway. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, one of our good friends here on the program, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor. You can buy her book, Panic Attack Doctor. Always enjoy it. We'll talk again soon. Happy Monday, everyone. And the Guy Benson Show is back right after this very short break. Please stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Did you catch the big game yesterday? No, not the Super Bowl. This. Here's a length of the court pass. Edie cashes it. Lost it. Barry's got it. Nine seconds to go. Highbury protecting the ball. Purdue's not going to fail. And for the first time ever, the Northwestern Wildcats have knocked off the number one team in the country. They have defeated the Purdue Boilermakers 64-58. to 58. Oh, play the fight song. Storm the court, students. You deserve it. Dave Ennett, WGN Radio on the call there. A win for the ages. If you're a Northwestern basketball fan, knocking off number one for the first time in school history, this magical season continues. I was going nuts at my house. Like, Super Bowl, what Super Bowl? That was the game of the day for me, and I'm still on a high because of it. Indiana rolling in Wednesday. That'll be another tough one. Go Cats. All right, we got to go. We'll be right back. Returning on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour just after this break. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Last hour, we caught up with our colleague Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent at Fox News. What an extraordinary weekend it has been. 
So many questions, even more questions than we had at the end of last week with these unidentified flying objects. Jennifer helped us make some sense of some of it. Here's a portion of that conversation. Is the explanation here basically, because I think to the average American, it's like, wow, all of a sudden, three shoot-downs in three days, what's happening? This is all of a sudden escalating. It's happening much more frequently. Isn't this alarming? Uh, that, That might be the case, that there is some form of escalation here. The other explanation would be, it's not actually an escalation. We're just now in a more public way, more aggressively looking for these things, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, That at least makes some logical sense to me. I think there are a couple things going on here. First of all, the large uh, Chinese spy balloon is very different from these three objects that were blown out of the sky in the last four days. We've heard the Pentagon say that the size is completely different. The Chinese spy balloon had uh, equipment that was about three uh, size of three buses. This, these objects, and they don't know whether they were balloons, they don't know whether they were, they're calling them objects, because they were about the size of a car, and they were blips on the radar. The reason that they were seen on uh, the radar is after the Chinese spy balloon came across the continental U.S., the uh, intelligence community, the U.S. military, basically ramped up its radar in that parameter between 20,000 feet and 60,000 feet or 100,000 feet, and they have started seeing blips all over the place. So they're having to investigate these blips. The the radar is more sensitive now. It's been, the aperture's been open, uh, and they're looking for more stuff. And what they're finding is there's a lot of stuff in the air. Were these weather balloons? Are these innocuous research balloons? Very possibly. Uh, We've heard that from Pentagon officials today. In fact, the defense secretary just said it's possible possible these were not nefarious objects, but they had, now that everybody's on edge and now that the whole nation is looking up in the sky wondering, you know, if there's a Chinese spy balloon up there, um, I think there's a, a a different calculation about what uh, what is being tracked and what uh, what will be shot down. I think the what we've heard, the reason for shooting down these smaller objects that were in the air is that they were at a lower height and they could interfere with civilian aircraft. But I think what you're seeing is uh, is just a greater focus in the wake of that large Chinese spy balloon coming across the continental U.S. My understanding, Jennifer, is that with the spy balloon, the big one, we were tracking it for many days. We were mm-hmm. well aware of it, whereas these other ones, it's sort of like, oh, all of a they sudden they up. show up, <laughs> right? That's, yeah. that's, that's not a great feeling. Like, oh, surprise, there's some unidentified thing well. in U.S. airspace. Now it's gone. By the way, we can't find it yet because the terrain is hard and the weather's bad. We don't really know what these things are. We can't tell you any more about them. We don't really know all that much more about them. And then there's also the piece from the Pentagon side. You know, shooting every single one of these things down with a missile, it's extremely expensive. Are there more effective ways of neutralizing or capturing or taking these things down? These are some of the other questions that I've heard people chatting about over the weekend. Well, I think what you're going to start to see, first of all, I think this is an overcorrection for not reacting sooner to the Chinese spy balloon. So let's let's just be clear. I don't think this is going to continue at this pace. I think what they're going to realize once they are able to get to, and these, these objects that were blown out of the sky, they are in very remote locations, and they haven't even been able to get to. It's, it's you know, Arctic conditions um, in Alaska. They can't get to that location. It's mountainous terrain. 
terrain in Canada. They can't get to that position. And it's uh, very cold and deep waters in Lake Huron near in the Canadian waters where uh, where the other object was blown out of the sky. So, so once they get to them, if they can actually figure out that these were, in fact, weather balloons, then you're going to see, you know, I think a lowering of temperature. Are they, though, going to keep that radar system up and looking at everything? Yes. But are they going to be shooting anything that that uh, that is on that radar system from here on out? I really don't think that that's the era that we're entering. I think this is a very unusual moment. I think it also sends a deterrent message to China and to Russia not to try us and not to send things over the continental U.S. So it kind of serves multiple purposes. But I can't imagine that they're going to be F-22s and F-16s firing sidewinders into every weather balloon. Uh, you have to remember, Guy, there are between six and 8,000 balloons, high-altitude balloons, in the air around the world at any given moment. So there are a lot of things flying around. And I just think Which is normal. now that we're- A lot of them are normal. That, yes, there, most of them are research, most of them are weather, most of them are Google Earth or Amazon. Uh, there, there are a number of very legitimate reasons for balloons to be up in the air. Um, they're not all Chinese spy balloons. But presumably, because we aren't shooting these things all out of the sky, we can kind of differentiate between, okay, we know what that is, we're aware of its existence. We're not going to blow it up. We're not going to shoot it down versus these things, which at least the official word is they, they don't know what they are. You know, you seem to suggest that maybe they're weather balloons. I was under the assumption that they were Chinese assets of some sort, you know, aerial assets. I guess we don't know. There's no evidence of that. And in fact, no we heard today from the Pentagon that they don't even know that these three objects came from other countries. So, I mean, there is very little known about what was shot out of the sky. And I think we will know more in, you know, the coming weeks, but it's not going to be immediate given where they went down. My full interview with Jennifer Griffin, along with the rest of the show, General Keene and others, start to finish available on our free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts available as soon as the show is over. Also coming up in the next hour, special report with Brett Baer. I'm on the panel. See you there. A lot to get to, a lot to discuss, of course. But first, when we return, the home stretch. A little Super Bowl talk, the game action, the halftime show, the commercials. The team weighs in after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. away. Mahomes racing with the bad angle at all. Inside the 20. He's taken down. Mahomes pressure. Lofting one. End zone incomplete. Juju Smith-Schuster couldn't catch up. There's a flag at the 10. Fire to the pass. Holding. Number 24. Defense. Butker up. Got it. Hurts. As all day, now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. There's the call from last night on Fox. Kevin Burkhart. Super Bowl 57 going to Kansas City as they pull off the win over the Philadelphia Eagles with that field goal. Time nearly expiring. Good clock management after that big penalty flag that you heard there in the montage, I know Philadelphia sports fans are going to be whining about that forever, which is on brand for them. I was rooting for Kansas City. I'd picked the Eagles to win, especially when I thought that 
Patrick Mahomes was hurt, and he was gimpy a little bit in that first half, and then he just put into another gear and went out there and won the game for his team. So I was happy. Sorry to all the Philly sports fans that I've called criminals for the last two weeks, but you can lick your wounds, had a very good season, but they had not faced a level of competition in the NFC playoffs that they were going to then face in the Super Bowl, as they learned last night. Now, look, on the penalty flag, we were watching it at our neighbor's house. They had a little Super Bowl party, a lot of fun. My mind was still reeling from the Northwestern upset basketball victory earlier in the day, so I was distracted tweeting about that. But I was watching the Super Bowl relatively closely, and especially toward the end as it was a really close game, I was riveted. Ugh, I mean, that... That, to me, is, even as someone who is actively against the Eagles and someone who delights in the frustration and consternation and pain of Philadelphia sports fans, I will admit that is ticky-tack. To have a game not fully decided, but somewhat substantially decided on a penalty call like that, I think is too bad. Because you can make the call that, yes, there was maybe his hand was there, a little bit of a grab. The ball was way over his head. And look, even if the flag hadn't come down, that doesn't mean that the Eagles win the game. I think some people are just jumping to that conclusion, like, oh, bad flag, unfair, Eagles robbed, the Chiefs wouldn't have won without it. No, I think that there are very good arguments that the Chiefs were going to win that game either way. Where they were on the field, the decisions that would have come next, but you just, you never know. So it was, if not a game-deciding flag, like I'm not saying it was totally decisive, it was very, very impactful on the conclusion, which you don't love to see. It's one thing if it's flagrant, and you have to throw the flag because it was a clear penalty. That one was, I would say, at best borderline. So a lot of people are arguing about that today. Look, the Eagles were the better team in the first half. KC much better in the second half, and they won the game. So congratulations to the Chiefs and their fans. And I don't really have much more to say beyond that. I know, Dan, you're a huge sports fan. Do you think that the call was egregious, unforgivable? Is is it getting overblown in the overall sports-related discourse around the game? I think it's getting a little overblown. I mean, it's tough at the end of a game like that where it's so close just to come down to a call like that for most fans and people watching the game, and it kind of mars it a little bit. But, you know, both teams played great, and for it to come down to that, I it was a hold to me. But, you know, if it's not called all game, why call it towards the end there? It makes absolutely no sense. And just to have that come down to that was um, unfortunate. But it was a really exciting game, uh, high scoring. Uh, they came out, the Chiefs came out, got that touchdown to Travis Kelsey. I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> they're not going to be able to guard Kelsey this entire game. And then they got a little stagnant. I don't know what was said in the Chiefs locker room at halftime, but whatever it was, it must have fired them up something else because they came out and looked great in the second half. Yeah, Andy Reid might have uh, had a thing or two to say. He was invited to waddle to the platform by Terry Bradshaw on the postgame. <laughs> I couldn't believe he said that. But, yeah, I mean, look, if they had been calling a really tight game with anything approaching an, inf- an infraction or the, a hand in a place where it wasn't supposed to be, if that's the way the officials have been calling it, then you just say, look, those are the breaks. They were being consistent. I think the problem was they were letting the guys play for the most part. 
as it should be in the Super Bowl for right. four quarters. And at the very end, in such an important spot to have the yellow laundry come down on the field and, you know, the automatic first down at that point, I mean, it's – I can understand why there's going to be people talking about it for a while, but you're not taking the championship trophy away from Kansas City, that's for sure. They won it fair and square, Chiefs, Super Bowl champions, and again, hats off to them. Now, those people who are not necessarily sports fans – like, not to feed into a stereotype, but at our party last night, most of the women in the house were gathered in the kitchen chatting through most of the football game. At one point, one of the moms came up and looked at the screen, and she gasped, and she said, oh, my gosh, Red is losing? Referring to the Chiefs at the time. <laughs> but everyone came into the living room area to watch with great interest at halftime because everyone wanted to see the Super Bowl halftime spectacular it's always something that people enjoy or at least talk about it was rihanna now we had been promised i think a special guest a surprise guest which we did not get until we learned that the surprise guest was rihanna's baby because she's pregnant again and she looked like she was pregnant but we weren't sure if we should say that the women were more openly discussing it the men were like oh you know I don't don't want to speculate. I thought the visuals were kind of cool with the floating platforms. Lots of jokes being made about balloons and things being blown out of the sky for obvious reasons. And I'll also say she has a ton of hits. It was just hit after hit after hit from Rihanna. A lot of which date back to my time even like in college. Umbrella was a huge hit. My senior year. And, of course, that song made an appearance, as it had to. Now, was the choreography all that involved on her part? Were there too many pre-recorded backup vocals? People had all their different complaints. Some people saying it was one of the worst they'd ever seen. Other people were like, oh, my gosh, she totally crushed it. What a queen. What an icon. I was sort of like, this is fine. It looked pretty cool. I don't expect them to be singing every single word live. I don't know, maybe that's a low expectation. That's just sort of what I assume. I thought it looked different and and interesting, and there were a lot of famous songs. And then, yeah, at the end, she, I guess, and her team revealed officially that she is having another baby. So, thrilled for her. Sorry for this milk toast take. Like, this is not a hot take. It's not a cold take. It was just like, yeah, it was, it was good. It was It was fine. It wasn't, I wouldn't, put it as one of my favorite of all time. I thought last year's was awesome with all the rappers. I thought Prince in the rain was unbelievable. Tom Petty in the heartbreakers. I mean, I just love their music. So I was very into that. Just a straightforward performance. And then, yes, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. I love the Katy Perry halftime show in terms of the sensational show that she put on like surreal. And Lady Gaga was also really good. Like, there have been some excellent ones. I thought Rihanna was kind of in the middle. And I don't know if that if that's going to get me a bunch of angry responses from people who have very strong feelings one way or the other. Christine, do we have a strong feeling? I absolutely loved the halftime show. I could understand why people thought it wasn't as exciting as maybe they had hoped for. But uh, she looked very, very pregnant, and I just think that's so badass that she could 
do what she did. I mean, look how high up she was. Just that alone, um, I I loved every single minute of her. I was singing along at my Super Bowl party, and yeah, I I I would say top five for me. Okay, I mean, fair enough. The commercials usually everyone has a big debate about which commercials were great, which ones were terrible, which ones were funny. I've seen a ridiculous amount of discourse around the the Christianity ad, the One of Us Jesus ad, where I know some very conservative Christians think that organization is too liberal. And then a bunch of liberal activists and journalists are saying, actually, this is a fascist organization that's trying to ban abortion. Like, that became so political, even though the whole point of the ad was to love your enemy and not to hate people that you disagree with. People clearly missed the memo on that and devolved into a typical sort of ideological food fight. But because, as I mentioned before, I wasn't really focused on every second of the telecast as I typically am, although I did catch the Gutfeld ad right before the halftime show. I was on my phone. I was reading and tweeting about the Northwestern game. I wasn't really paying attention to the ads. So people are raving about, like, the Ben Affleck ad, I guess, for Dunkin' Donuts. Didn't see it. Missed it completely. I just just didn't see it. A few of them I chuckled at. They also release almost all of them before the game now. So they're all on YouTube. So you've seen some of the buzz before they, quote, unquote, surprise you on the air. So that takes some of the luster away from it as well, at least as far as I'm concerned. All right, we're out of time. There's so much more to get to, tomorrow being Valentine's Day. Reminder, by the way, fellas, (laughs) tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Uh, Christine has an interesting Valentine's Day story that we'll probably get to on tomorrow's broadcast. But for now, we are out of time. Got to go get ready for Special Report, which is coming up later on in the next hour on Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there on the panel right around quarter of 7 Eastern time. And then back here on the radio tomorrow, same time, same place as always. Thank you for listening. It's The Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 